Well, some of you guys know that I, when I was in college, I went to Bailey University down in Waco, Texas. Uh, I had no idea about Waco, Texas before I moved to the States. That was the first place I stayed, so I, I had no idea what awaited me there. And then all of the stories, I'm sure if you lived through the 90s, you know all about Waco, Texas for all the wrong reasons. Uh, but I loved moving there, loved the experience, was really excited just to kind of get into a, a new place and, and do college. Uh, and very quickly, I learned that one of the kind of the things to do in Waco was to go up to Lake Whitney, which was about a 45-minute drive, uh, to go and enjoy the lake. Now, when my friends asked me to do this, I assumed we were going to swim in a lake, which I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's going to be fun. That's great. We really were going to do this, cliff jumping. Okay. Yeah, that's what I said when we pulled into the parking lot. Now, it really isn't that high, mathematically speaking. However, when I got there, it was the, there was a huge crowd, probably close to 50 college students, right? All jumping straight off that cliff, screaming, yeah, it was the greatest time of their lives. I did not feel that way, okay? <laughs> so I'm, go, I'm going up to the edge of the cliff, and um, it was the weirdest, the, the only thing I can experience is, is an out-of-body experience, because I would get to the edge of the cliff, and I'm seeing other people jumping, and they've, they've got smiles on their face, having the greatest time ever. But my brain, I guess, decided I was no longer responsible enough to drive, and so it took control. And I, I, would, I would genuinely, like, my feet were just stuck. So eventually I had to, like, kind of stop for a second, because there's, now there's a crowd of people looking at this weird guy that's just kind of going like this at the end of the cliff. But, I, yeah, I just couldn't figure it out. And even I'm watching kids kind of climb back up after they've d- dived down. They've got smiles on their face. They're having the greatest experience ever. And I just did not know what was wrong with these people. Now, faith can sometimes be a similar experience where you feel like you're at the edge of a cliff and Christ is asking you to put your faith in him, to dive deep into who he is. And yet, you see a lot of the components of following Jesus are not all that thrilling. They're not all as exciting as he tells you they are. And you see other people in the faith, you read these stories of scripture with people with, full of joy. People like Paul who's in a prison cell and he's full of joy. And you wonder what is wrong with these people that they follow this Jesus, that these things happen to them and yet they're full of joy. And so we're left with this question mark of how is it that we as followers of Jesus can arrive at that experience? How is it that we can bring ourselves to take the step off the cliff, to dive into Christ and all the things that he calls us to? And walk back up with a smile on our face. That is really what the, Philippians, the letter to the Philippians is all about. It's Paul helping the Philippians learn what it means to experience Christ in his fullness. This letter is being written from Paul in a prison cell. It's been 10 years and since he had visited the Philippian church. He started the church under some really interesting circumstances. If you have read this, it's in Acts 16. Arrives in Philippi, starts preaching the gospel, tells them all about Jesus, and very quickly things turn sour. Now there are some incredible things that happen. A woman named Lydia gives her life to Christ. Her and her whole household, they start a church in Philippi. But the crowds of people get frustrated with Paul because this message of Jesus, it disrupts their way of life. They end up in a prison cell, before which they are beaten with rods, thick, probably close to something like bamboo, stripped down naked and beaten with rods. So Paul's time in Philippi was not all that great, and yet when he leaves, God has done something. He's created an experience in this people where they want to continue to support what Paul's doing. The church in Philippi, they send gifts of money, they send gifts of resources, they send members of their church to go and encourage Paul and be with them. And 10 years later, he's writing back to them 
this letter about the hope of Jesus. And he wants them to understand why the good news of Jesus gives us encouragement to navigate life. Can you imagine being in Philippi and hearing that the leader of the church, the, the main guy that has been doing the ministry around the Middle East, has ended up in a prison cell in Rome, the center of the empire. And in fact, things look so bad for Paul, as he's going to mention in the text we look at today, that his very life may be forfeit very soon. And yet Paul writes to them with joy in his heart, with excitement about what God's doing. And the reason he says this is because he has three things. He has three things that he helps us see in this passage. A new perspective, a new desire, and a new life. And if you lay hold of these three things, if you can join Paul in laying hold of these three things, then your experience of life will be transformed. Because your life will no longer be dependent on your circumstances, but rather they'll be built on the one who has loved you. Paul wants people who understand life is not about circumstances, it's about who you live for. Life is not about circumstances, it's who you live for. So what I want to do is I just want to look at this text in Philippians 1 and look at these three things, a new perspective, a new desire, and a new life. First, I want to talk about a, a new perspective, which lends itself so helpfully to sermon illustrations. You have probably come across pictures like this. Uh, as, as you have traveled through life, optical illusions where you kind of see one image, but there's two things there. Does everybody see what's hidden inside that apple core and the two faces? There you go. You got it. One apple, but there's another image there overlaid, right? Another one that's really famous is the old lady and the young lady. How many of you see the old lady first? Yeah. How many of you saw the young lady first? This must be a youthful congregation. <laughs> Yeah, I always see the old lady first. So the old lady's kind of looking down, a little melancholy. She's got a little bit of a grimace. But then if you are careful, you can see the young lady looking the other direction. Now, this next one is one that frustrated me to no end. Yeah, y'all, y'all, yeah, I'll let it get it out of your system. It's okay. You can find them both. So now, I see a frog. Does anybody else see anything else in this image? I did not see anything for the longest time. But if you flip it on its side, like in the next image, Will, you see a horse. I know. Isn't that satisfying to see the second image? Now, this is really interesting because in all of these images that I've shown you, at first you can see one very clear set of circumstances. You see one very clear image. But hidden in that image is something else. There's something else going on. The one that's most dramatic for me is the frog. But what Paul wants the Philippian church to understand is there's a set of circumstances that he finds himself in. It looks like it's one way, but Paul wants to show them, actually, there's something else going on here. There's something else underlaid all of the circumstances you see that God is doing that gives me reason to be joyful, to be hopeful, to be excited. This is what he says. He says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that 
I rejoice. Paul, to be clear, is facing a really difficult trial. He is chained 24-7 to a member of the Imperial Guard. He can't go to the bathroom in private. He can't have any private time to himself. Everything is being done with someone chained next to him. He's in a prison cell, which probably are not pleasant conditions for Paul. And in fact, he is endangered to the cost of his life. If things go the wrong way, he will be executed for crimes against the empire. And yet he's full of joy. He writes to them and he says, I want you to understand what's really going on here, guys. 24-7, the greatest evangelist in the Middle East is chained to an imperial guard who cannot escape, no matter what Paul says. He's rotating through them. And he says that all of the imperial guard have now heard about my imprisonment for Christ. They've heard about the message of who Jesus is, what he's done for them. The incredible things that he accomplished in his life. Paul is saying the gospel is reaching further than it ever could have if I wasn't in this prison cell. Do you realize that very shortly, Paul would have been presented to a judiciary from the emperor? Which means that the emperor of Rome may very well soon hear about the message of Jesus. Clearly, from the best evangelist in the area. Wouldn't have happened if Paul wasn't in that prison cell. And furthermore, Paul goes on to say that the brothers are encouraged. That the other Christians in the area, they're hearing about what's happening with Paul, and they've become even more bold in sharing the gospel. They've got more courage. Paul mentions that there's some people that are kind of preaching out of envy, and they're trying to afflict him in prison, meaning they're just kind of trying to hurt his feelings. And yet Paul is saying, but it doesn't matter. Because even that, even in those people who are trying to cause me trouble, the message of Jesus is reaching further. More people are hearing about this. More people are getting connected to the churches. More people are being able to be ministered to, encouraged. See, there's two things I want you to understand about what Paul is telling us here. First one is this. Paul doesn't despair because to a certain extent, he expects difficulty in following Jesus. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He says, if people hate you, know that they hated me first. It wasn't vague to the early church and the early disciples that following Jesus had a cost to it. And that's important for us because we tend to forget that. We tend to only focus on the, the message of Jesus that brings really good things into our life. And we forget that sometimes there is a cost to following Jesus. There's hardship to following Jesus. It's not always easy. If Paul was under the illusion that it was supposed to be easy, that following Jesus was supposed to make every avenue of his life more comfortable, easier, happier, then maybe that prison cell would have caused him to despair. But he wasn't under any such illusion. He understood that following Jesus came with a cost. If we're neglectful of that reality, we will constantly be looking for something in our faith that isn't there, namely a life free from trouble or challenge. But the second thing that's important, really important for us, is to understand that any circumstances in our life, God can use to accomplish great things. Do you think that Paul's first plan for the growth of the church was to end up in a prison cell in Rome? Of course not. And yet even there, God is growing his kingdom. And this is what God has done from page one of the Bible. If you go all the way back to Genesis and read the story of Joseph, Right at the end of Joseph's story, if you remember, this is the story. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery because they were jealous of him. They're jealous of the love that their father showed him. And he goes through trial after trial. Things get worse and worse until Joseph is also someone who ends up in a prison cell. And yet even there, God is at work. 
Joseph ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt and is able to help the entire nation of Egypt avoid disaster from a famine. And after that, he meets with his brothers who've come to find food because they're in the middle of a famine. And what he tells them is this. Those same brothers who sold him into slavery all the years before, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, that's the work of the gospel. That's the work of our great God. He takes pain and injustice and suffering and struggle and he turns it on its head. And he uses it to accomplish great things. My favorite pastor, Tim Keller, he calls this the alchemy of God. Do you remember alchemists are known for being that group of people that were always trying to find a way to turn lead into gold? Is there some kind of chemical process? Is there something that we can do to turn lead into gold? Well, God is the greatest alchemist because that's exactly what he does. He turns lead into gold. God takes circumstances that otherwise would be nothing but painful, meaningless, useless circumstances and he twists them, and he reforms them, and he shapes them, until out of those situations, he brings something beautiful. He brings beauty from ashes. God does this again and again and again throughout all of the stories of Scripture. Paul has an expectation that God will make even the worst of circumstances useful, even glorious. And he wants the Philippians, and by extension us, to have the same expectation of God. So this morning, you might be asking, how are my current circumstances useful? They don't feel very useful. They feel difficult. They feel painful. They feel like God is absent. Yet I want you to see what Paul sees. I want you to have the same perspective, that new perspective that lets you see God can use any of the circumstances in your life. You think Paul's first plan was to be in that prison cell we've already said? No. And yet Paul writes in his letter to Rome, to the Roman church, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul knows there's no useless circumstances in God's economy, only opportunity. God can use your circumstances, no matter how bleak they look, to accomplish great things in the lives of people around you, in the life of the church, but most importantly, in you. God can use whatever circumstances you're in to do great things in you. That's why Paul has a new desire. He has a new desire in his life. One of my good friends in college was a guy named Michael Vichy. And Michael was very much into UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, right? It's basically just a cage where two guys beat the snot out of each other, okay? He loved it. His dad, Joe, was not such a fan of UFC, but one day Michael said, hey, dad, you want to come with me uh, to watch the, the new UFC? We can go downtown and we can, and we can watch this together. And his dad said, sure, I'll come with you. So they go downtown, they end up watching the game. And while they're out, one of Joe, one of Michael's dad's friends comes through and he says, Joe, I didn't know you were a UFC guy. And his answer was, I'm not a UFC guy, but I am a Michael guy. So in those circumstances, Joe loved his son, loved being with his son, so much so that desire was so deep that he was willing to endure some less than preferable circumstances around him. Now take that very small, silly example and expand it out. The deeper desire that you have in your life for something, the more that you're willing to endure to achieve that desire, to have that desire. Paul's desire for Christ is so great that that prison cell is reduced to just inconvenience. 
Truly, I know that that's shocking. It really doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense that such awful conditions could be just inconvenience to Paul. It was painful. He didn't like it. There wasn't anything great about it. He wasn't under some silly illusion that it was good to be in a prison cell. But his deeper desire helped him look beyond that. He knew that he wanted Jesus more. Here's what he says. He says in Philippians 1, 19 through 20, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He says, through the prayers of the Philippians and God's Spirit, this, meaning his imprisonment, his current circumstances, will be used for my deliverance. Now, we might be tempted at first to think, okay, maybe Paul is just really optimistic. I mean, after all, Paul has been in a prison where God has set him free before. In fact, right at the beginning of the Philippian church, Paul was in prison and God created an earthquake. The doors of the prison opened up. And very shortly after that, Paul was able to be released. So maybe that's where Paul's at again. Maybe he's just like, well, I know God. I know what he does. You're praying for me and the spirit moves. So maybe I'll be out of here real soon. But that's not what he's saying. We know that that's not what he's saying because what does he say at the end of verse 21? Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul is not saying that his deliverance is to escape these circumstances. Paul is saying my deliverance is found somewhere in these circumstances. His deliverance was something deeper, something that flows out of his new desire. He says it right there in verse 20. My eager expectation is that Christ will be honored in my body. What I expect, what I'm looking for in these circumstances is not freedom, is not comfort, is not all those things that you might think. It's that Christ would meet me where I am right now and he would be honored in what happens here. Paul goes on to say in in chapter three of this same letter, Philippians three, verses seven and nine, one of the most famous passages in all of scripture. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from my doing of things, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a great passage. When he says, I count them as rubbish, Paul uses a Greek word, skubalon. And when translators translate that word from Greek to English for us, they have to do some editing. Because in the original Greek, skubalon, or the word that's translated rubbish, means a great big steaming pile of a word that we can't say in church. Now, the reason why I'm highlighting that to you, beyond just the interesting factoid of what's in your Bible, is this, is Paul knows that he's using that word. He's saying everything else in my life, all the other circumstances in my life, when I compare it to knowing Christ, getting more of Christ, gaining more of Christ, it means as much to me as he's being really emphatic, he's being dramatic, he's being intentional at saying, I need you to understand that compared to Jesus, this prison cell and everything else, it's less than nothing. 
If you're a fan of The Chosen and you've watched the episode where John the Baptist is put in prison, I love the line that John says because one of Jesus' disciples comes to see him in the shore. He says, aren't you worried? I just, it's so terrible that you're in this prison cell. And what John the Baptist says is, now that he's here, this prison cell is nothing. It's the same way that Paul feels. He understands that gaining Christ is a deeper desire. It's a more important thing. He's so excited about it. He wants to gain more of him. So he's the real point for us. God can use any circumstance to bring about good, but not just general good, not just good for people out there, good for you, specific good in your soul. Even in the worst of circumstances, God can grow you in Christ-likeness. You can gain more of Christ by growing in humility, in compassion, in patience, in understanding of suffering. What are you going through right now that God may want to use as a process of refinement in your life to cultivate character in you? Friends that are difficult and have caused you pain. A career that you are just bored with that you don't want to be in. A chronic condition that you've been suffering with for years that you've been aching and saying, Lord, please take this away from me. He may, please continue to pray for that. Ask us to pray for that as a church because God heals. But in the meantime, until those circumstances change, have you asked them if there is something to be gained from where you are now and not where you might be in a few years? You look at the moments and the circumstances of your life today and say, God, what do you want to accomplish through this and in me through this? Now, it doesn't happen by magic. It's not just that we all say we love Jesus and so now everything that's hard in our life becomes easy. That's not what happens. Sometimes our circumstances are deeply painful. They unravel us. They crush us. So we need to pay attention to how this happens because what Paul says is he doesn't say it's just going to happen by automatic. He says, I know that through your prayers, meaning the prayers of the church, of the Philippian church, and the Spirit of God. The prayers of the saints and the church and the Spirit of God. That's how this happens. You need those two things for this to happen. You can't see your circumstances with a new perspective and with a new desire until you've received the prayers of the saints, until you've invited the Spirit of God to work in you and change you. Paul is not counting on himself to make this work. It's not something you can do yourself. It's not something that you just tough it out and you just find yourself in difficult circumstances and say, okay, well, I just got to learn my lesson. God's just trying to teach me something. And so I just got to sit in these painful, uncomfortable, difficult circumstances and take it. That's not what Paul is asking of you. That's not what God is asking of you. To reach the place that Paul is at in that prison cell, it required faithful commitment to the path of Jesus for all the days prior to it. Paul had to be committed to Jesus, not just in difficult moments, but in good moments. I'll put it this way. If you don't submit to God's work in you in the springtime, you will not be able to submit to his work in you in the wintertime. If you don't submit to his work in you when it's good, when you've got space to do it, when you've got the, the freedom to really be patient and thoughtful and reflective, then when it comes to the moment when those things are squeezed, It'll be unfamiliar, it'll be difficult, you'll be clouded. But if you have learned to know Jesus in the springtime when things are good, when things are open, when things are ready, I promise you, he will be familiar enough to you in the winter that he will take care of you. He will bless you. 
He will move in you. He'll transform you. King David's a really great example of that. King David was a shepherd boy in a field. He wrote Psalms, spent time with God, prayed, so that when later in life things went south for him and his own children were turned against him and there was war and there was sin and there was brokenness, David had already familiarized himself enough to know how to go and be with the one that would hold his soul together. He was familiar. Don't struggle in silence. If you're in circumstances right now that you feel are crushing you, unraveling you, ask for the prayers of the saints. Be involved in community. Share your life so that people can be praying for you, holding you together, caring for you, ministering to you. And most importantly, spend time with Jesus and invite the Spirit of God to come and move in your heart now, to grow in you, to strengthen you, to prepare you. Because I promise you, hard times will come for you no matter who you are. Loss will come for you no matter who you are. Crisis will come for you no matter who you are. And on that day, if you want to have the experience that Paul has in that cell, you will need the prayers of the church and you will need the Spirit of God. So throw yourself into him. God can use all circumstances for good, not just general good, but for specific good in you. And ultimately, he does that by giving you a new life. That's how Paul closes this little section. It says in Philippians 1, 21 through 26, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, the Philippians account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says that his life is Christ. Every one of us is building our life on some kind of bedrock, some kind of bottom line that gives meaning and value and purpose to everything else. It might be for you happiness. Happiness might be the thing that justifies and explains everything else in your life. You work so that you can go and do things and afford things that make you happy. But what happens if happiness is taken away? If your life is happiness, if that's the bedrock, that when you find yourself in a season where you can't find happiness, it's not just some things that go away. It's your very life that goes away. You become absolutely lost in crisis. Maybe the bedrock for you is success, it's achievement. You want to achieve things, you want to go things, you want to go the distance in your career and with your family and with your friends. But what happens when you reach a season of life when not much is being achieved? When you're in financial crisis or you lose a job and you spiral and you unravel? Maybe for you to live is to be righteous, to be moral and upstanding. Now that one sounds really good and biblical, right? I want to be a righteous person. I want to be right. I want to do the right things. I want to make the right choices. But what happens when you inevitably make a mistake? Because there's not one of us here who is without sin. There's not one of us who can live a righteous life. There's not one of us who can make the right decision every time in every set of circumstances. And so when you discover that there is sin in you, what happens if that was your life? You lose your life. It happens to a character in Les Mis, one of my favorite uh, musicals. Character Javert. How many of you have seen Les Mis? Are we familiar with this? Okay. 
So if you haven't, watch the Hugh Jackman movie. It's a good movie. But there's a character in Les Mis called Javert. Javert is this man who lives by the law. He lives by the letter of the law. He wants to do everything right. He wants to be moral and upstanding. And he's pursuing the criminal Valjean. And yet towards the end of the book, he discovers that Valjean is a better man than him. Valjean is more gracious than he is. He's more compassionate than he is. He's able to do more for other people. And Valjean even goes to the the point of sparing Javert's life in a moment when he could have taken it. And all of a sudden, Javert's life is cut out from under him. He built his entire life on that bedrock of being right, and he discovers that a criminal is a better man than him, is more like God than him. It's so undoing for him that he actually takes his own life. And in that book, there is a great example of what happens if you build your life on the wrong bedrock. If you build it on the wrong thing, you will lose your life eventually. And so Paul says there's only one thing, one thing that can stand up to the pressure of being our bedrock, and that's Christ. For me to live is Christ. See, the good news of Christ is that he is an idol smasher. An idol in, in biblical times is the idea of something that you worship. An idol is something that you give your heart to, that, that gives value back to you. And Jesus comes in the world to smash idols, to destroy the things that we build our life on that cannot care for us the way that he can. He loves us so greatly, so deeply, so completely that Jesus comes to wreck those things that are not gonna stand up when things get hard so that he can give us something that will, namely himself. Right now, there is nothing better that Jesus could be for you than an idol smasher because every single one of us are building things on the wrong bedrock. Think about Paul's life. His ministry's over, his career's over, his profession's over. He can't plant churches anymore. He's stuck in a prison cell. But his life's not over because he's got Christ. He says in the prison cell, even if I die, that's gain for me. He's come to understand what Peter had understood when Jesus was in his ministry. There was a point where people started to realize, oh, following Jesus is actually kind of hard. It's gonna have costs for me. And so some disciples start to walk away from Jesus. In John 6, this is what we hear. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It got too hard. So Jesus turns around. He says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Is it too hard for you? And Peter, who is so often prone prone to say the wrong thing, says the right thing for once. He says, Lord, where else shall we go? To whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What's Peter saying to Jesus? There's nowhere else for me to go. You're the bedrock. What else am I supposed to build my life on if it's not you? If it's success, it'll go away. If it's happiness, I'll face difficult days. If it's to be moral, I know that I'll fail. What else am I supposed to build my life on if not you, Jesus? Paul gets that. And that's why he says, for me to live is Christ. And he also says to die is gain. Now, how many of you really believe that? We've probably read this verse before. I'm sure you've heard it before. How many of you really believe that to die is gain? At my mom's funeral, I remember sitting in the front row and the pastor's giving a message. And one of the things he said is, if we could ask Kath if she would want to come back today, if she would want to come back and be with us, she would say no. And that was really hard for me to hear that. I thought, what experience must she be having that she wouldn't want to come back and be with her grandchildren and her children? 
And the answer is Christ in his fullness with an unveiled face. It's true. It's true that if any of the saints that have gone before us and have passed into the arms of Jesus and are with him now, if we could talk to them, they would say, build your life on him because now I can see him. Now I can see that I had nothing but gain in him. He was better than all the riches of treasures of all the earth. He was better than all the circumstances that I ever faced in my life. Follow him. Press yourself into him. Nothing can guarantee blessings in your life the way that Jesus can. It might not be the blessings that you want, but it is the blessings that you need. And he will guarantee them in himself. No one turns lead into gold the way that Jesus can. No one can turn you into gold the way that Jesus can. So pursue him. Throw yourself into his arms. Let him carry your burdens. Let him meet you in your circumstances. Ask him today to be for you what he was for Paul. A bedrock of life that does not shift. If you don't know Jesus, if you find yourself today wondering, do I know this one, this one whose life? I would love to help you understand what it means to follow him, to invite him to be a part of your life. Turn to someone you came to church with today. Ask them about how you can know them. In a moment, we're gonna come to communion. Before we do that, I just wanna read these verses from Matthew's gospel that encourage us in pursuing Jesus. In Matthew 13, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what Paul has drumming in his heart in that prison cell. Everything else is rubbish. Everything else is lost. I'll give it all up to know him. That's a prescription in Matthew for the way we are to live our lives, to give everything, to know him, to follow him. But it's also a description. It's a prescription of how we are to live our lives, but it's a description of Jesus himself. Because who was it who was the first to give everything for the joy that was set before him so that he could make a purchase? It was Christ. Who was it who was the first to take everything he had and lay it down so that he could buy us? The ones that he had made into his treasure. Why is Christ the best bottom line, bedrock for your life? Because he gave his life. You hear me telling you to live for him today, but I really hope that this is far louder than anything else I've said. You can live for him because he lived for you first. He gave everything he had for you because of his great love for you. He made you such an object of love and commitment and devotion that no circumstances could deter him from pursuing you. No amount of mockery or loss or tragedy, not even the cross itself, which was an agony upon him. Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, which is you, he endured the cross. He knew he knew that his father makes all things new, that he uses the cross for good, that he uses terrible circumstances for good, that he turns lead into gold. Can I tell you, if you find yourself at the cliff, looking down, wondering like I did, whether it's worth it, whether it's worth it to throw yourself into the ocean of God's grace, is it trustworthy? Is it gonna be comfortable? No, but you will find in those waters a joy that will have you climbing back up the rock face with a smile on your face, no matter what you go through. 
in those waters of God's grace, in his arms, in the arms of Jesus, is a life that is more to be desired than anything else. He is the one that you were made for. There is a joy that awaits you in those waters. There is a power that awaits you in those waters that makes prison cells into places of worship and the dread of death into an expectation of glory. So here's what we're going to do, church. I want you to take the cup that you got when you came in for communion. If you uh, didn't get one of these, just raise your hand. Uh, and our ushers will bring the bucket around, make sure you get one. I'll, I'll wait for a couple of minutes because I see a couple of hands. I just want to take a moment to remind us of why we do this every month. There's a reason we do this. And the reason is this, is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed and went to the cross, he sat and he had a meal with his disciples, with his dear friends and family. He knew that shortly they were going to go through a set of circumstances that would not be good that would not be thrilling. And he wanted them to remember who he was and what he was gonna do for them. See, Jesus came to turn lead into gold for his disciples and for us so that when we go through the waters, God would be with us. So when we take this cup, it's very easy for you to just, to think of that story. Maybe you've taken communion a hundred times before and it's easy for you to forget what it is we're remembering. We are remembering that because of the body of Christ that was broken for us, because of the blood of Christ that was shed for us, when we go through the waters, He will be with us. When we go through circumstances that are unbearable, that are painful, He holds our soul together. This is not something that's exclusive to Chapel Street, and so my encouragement is, is if you are new with us, you are welcome to be a part of communion if you're from a tradition where that wasn't common, I just want to let you know, you're welcome to take this with us because this is Christ's cup and his body, not Chapel Street. But if you have received Christ in your heart, if you believe in your heart and you have spoken with your mouth that Christ is Lord, that he is the bedrock, the one that you want to cling to, then I invite you to do this, to peel the bottom layer of that cup and to take that bread and to remember the words of Jesus who said this, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Let's eat this in remembrance of him together. In the same way, Jesus took a cup. So if you peel the top layer of that, what Jesus said is that this is my blood that is shed for the new covenant, a covenant for the forgiveness of sins. When we drink this, we remember that Christ's blood, we trust in it, has washed away our sin, and that we are new. Drink this in remembrance of him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this gift of communion that you have given to us to remember your great love. Lord, if we're honest, we are far too forgetful. Perhaps those of us in church are the ones who are most forgetful, most prone to let our souls forget that you are the bedrock, that you are the one that gives meaning and purpose to everything else. You are the one who has given yourself for us. And so, Father, we pray this morning our hearts would remember and rejoice.
rejoice. That you would give us new perspective, new desire, new life in your son. May we gain him and count everything else as loss. We pray in his name. Amen. I want to thank you for worshiping this morning. I hope it's been an encouragement to you and the God who wants to meet you in your circumstances. Just a reminder. You can always hold on to this bulletin. It's got details of what's coming up. We'd love for you to join us at any of the events we mentioned at the start, our reading groups, our small groups, our conferences. Uh, But I also just want to remind you, if there's any way we can be praying for you, don't be in a rush to leave this place. We're family here together, and we'd love to encourage you however we can. So please come and let us know. I'm here. Our prayer team leaders are here as well. But for now, let me leave you with a benediction from Paul's letter to the Galatians. In chapter 2, he writes this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Let's go in the name of Christ today. Amen.